The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The case I'm covering on this episode of Washed Away involves a missing little girl, a DNA scavenger hunt, and a possible serial killer suspect. Oh, and this case has been cold for 60 years. Let me tell you about the disappearance of Anne Marie Burr. In 1961, Anne Marie Burr was just eight years old. She had hazel eyes, blonde hair, and stood slightly above four feet tall. She studied piano, and her parents described her as both artistic and intelligent. She was also pretty independent and regularly walked several blocks to school alone. She had three younger siblings Julie, Greg, and Mary. The Burr family lived on 14th Street in Tacoma, Washington which at one time was known as the kidnapping capital of the West. That nickname came from some high-profile cases that happened in the 1930s, like the kidnapping of nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser in 1935. George's father, J.P. Weyerhaeuser, was a prominent lumberman at the time, and after he paid a ransom, George was returned to his family. The very next year, in 1936, Charles F. Matson, who was only 10, was kidnapped from his living room by a masked man with a gun. Sadly, Charles was murdered, and his body was found a few weeks later. Both boys lived in Tacoma, and less than three decades later, that city would again make headlines for a local missing child, Anne Marie. It's just such a bizarre crime and such a brazen crime to go into a home in the middle of the night with a whole family there sleeping and, you know, walk out of the house with the child. That's Lindsay Wade, a now retired Tacoma police officer. You actually worked on this cold case, right? The disappearance of Anne Marie Burr? Yeah, it was when I was still with the police department. So I was with uh, Tacoma PD for 21 years and I spent the last 14 of it as a detective working sex crimes and homicides and missing persons. And I spent the last three years of my career as the cold case detective. But even before that, I was, you know, helping out with some of our cold cases just kind of as a collateral duty, just because I was interested in them. And my partner, my former partner at the time, was our actual assigned cold case detective for our department. And he uh, had opened up the Anne Marie Burr case. And this is probably 2010, somewhere in that ballpark. And so we got to talking about the case. And my involvement with that case really was um, trying to track down. Ted Bundy's DNA. We'll talk more about Ted Bundy's DNA in a little bit. But first, here's what happened to Anne. She went missing in the middle of a stormy night on August 31st, 1961. 
At some point after the whole family had gone to bed, all of the burrs, Anne-Marie went into her parents' room to let them know that her little sister, Mary, who had a cast on her arm at the time, was crying. The parents, of course, told the girls to go back to bed, and supposedly they did. The parents' sleep was disturbed yet again when they heard their dog bark at least once that night, but they assumed it was due to the noise of the storm. At 5.30 a.m. the next morning, Anne-Marie's mother, Beverly, woke up and realized that Anne was missing. The front door was found unlocked and open. A small window in the living room was also found to be open, and a red thread was stuck on the windowsill. Outside, a garden bench was discovered under that window, which is not where it was usually located. On the bench, a barely there footprint could be seen. Is the only evidence in the Anne-Marie case the like footprints that were found outside the window? Is there anything else to go on at this point? At her house, you know, there was a footprint that was observed. There was a like a partial palm print that was found on a bench that was probably a child's palm print because it, it might have had makeup or something on it. And it was small. You know, there were some like fibers and, you know, little pieces of wood that they chipped off at the uh, bedroom, well, on her headboard and on the um, windowsill where they believe the point of entry was. So, you know, nothing great like hair, you know, blood, uh, you know, semen, uh, you know, nothing, there was no clothing recovered, like, you know, nothing that would, we would look at today and, and say, yeah, that'd be a, a really good source of DNA. So the footprint was small enough to probably belong to a teenager or smaller adult, which is interesting. And it's thought that the kidnapper entered through the window and left out the front door. You'd have to be fairly small to get through a window or at least on the smaller side and agile enough to go through a window without waking up everyone inside. Also, the neighbors of the Burr family mentioned that they had seen someone peering into their windows just a few days before Anne disappeared. But unfortunately, they didn't get a close look at who it was. After an exhaustive search that lasted months and covered both land and water, Anne was nowhere to be found. The search for her was actually considered by some to be the biggest quote-unquote manhunt in Tacoma history. In this case, there were no witnesses to the kidnapping itself. Little Mary couldn't remember anything. There were no credible ransom demands or clues, and we'll talk more about that later. And there was no evidence other than the footprint and the piece of string to go on. So it went cold really fast. A $5,000 reward was offered for Anne's return, but never collected. And that might not sound like much, but $5,000 in 1961 would be worth $45,000 in today's money. It's one of those cases where there's just not a lot to work with. You know, if the crime occurred today, I think that, uh, you know, law enforcement certainly would have so many more tools at their disposal to investigate it because obviously they didn't have, you know, video cameras. They didn't have people with uh, security systems and, you know, cell phones and social media and, you know, all of the things that are available today. Do I, you know, do I think it would have been solved if it happened today? I don't know. There were quite a few suspects, including a teenage neighbor that failed one polygraph and passed another. Though, to be fair, those tests are incredibly unreliable. Local sex offenders were looked at, but no one was promising. A man was charged with disorderly conduct after trying to collect on a ransom for Anne, despite having no connection to her disappearance. An inmate in Oklahoma would later claim that he and a friend kidnapped Anne-Marie while they were working in Tacoma and buried her in a field. The police dug up that field 
and found nothing. A promising suspect, in my opinion, is an auto parts salesman from Spokane who took a 10-year-old girl from Tacoma on a, quote, ride through the Pacific Northwest and then dropped her off a few days later. There wasn't really any more information about what happened, but obviously not a good situation. And this info comes from historylink.org. The man, Ralph Everett Larkey, shot himself as the FBI pounded on his door. So I'm not sure what connection he had to the Burr family other than location and, I guess, M.O., but that story jumped out to me as a huge red flag, and sadly, we'll never know if he was the guy. Because there's just not a lot of, I mean, there's not any information about what happened to her after her she left, after mm-hmm. she left her home. You can't rule anything out. Yeah. So, and at that, you know, at that time, there had been other child abductions that had occurred in Tacoma, but they were uh, financially motivated. You know, they had the kids that were abducted and uh, for ransom, and these were, you know, children of wealthy families. But that's that was certainly wasn't the case here. You know, there was no ransom demand. This wasn't a wealthy family. So, you know, it leaves the it leaves basically you know two alternatives. You know, someone abducted her for the purpose of harming her, and we know with um, child abduction that. Typically, the the motivation for abducting a child is um, is sexually motivated, and then the other possibility is that, yeah, you know, somebody abducted her and then they took her home and raised her as their own child. I mean, I can't rule out that possibility, but that seems pretty remote to me. There weren't many other leads until the 1980s, when serial killer Ted Bundy told an interesting story to journalists while he was on death row. He spoke about killing a young girl in an orchard, but wasn't clear on if this was something he heard about or something he did. And Ted Bundy grew up very close to Anne's home in Tacoma, so this admission set off quite a few alarm bells. Once the story broke into the news, Beverly, Anne's mother, actually wrote to Bundy in prison to ask him about Anne Marie. This was part of his response. Quote, First and foremost, I do not know what happened to your daughter Anne Marie. I had nothing to do with her disappearance. You said she disappeared August 31st, 1961. At the time, I was a normal 14-year-old boy. I did not wander the streets late at night. I did not steal cars. I had absolutely no desire to harm anyone. I was just an average kid. For your sake, you really must understand this. End quote. Despite denying his involvement in Anne's disappearance to her mother in that letter, Ted Bundy reportedly told the story about the girl in the orchard again but this time to a professor in an interview that he did not long afterwards. Ted Bundy's many murders, the ones that we do know about, didn't begin until either 1969 or the early 1970s. He gave different answers depending on who asked. He lied. A lot. So it's really hard to trust anything he said. But detectives believe it's entirely possible that he could have started killing much earlier as a teenager. Oh, and remember that clip about finding Ted Bundy's DNA? Lindsay's story of how that all came to be is really interesting. So if you don't mind, let's take a quick detour from the Burr case and talk about that for a bit. I promise it all comes back together. You know, Ted Bundy was a suspect in that case just based on really urban legend. I mean, there was no evidence um, that we were aware of that linked him to the case. You know, his name had always been out there since he was identified as a serial killer and who, you know, somebody who grew up in the north end of Tacoma uh, as well. And, you know, those similarities. And so he was, you know, somebody that we 
knew, you know, had been associated with the case. But again, there was really, you know, nothing concrete linking him. When we uh, started looking at what kind of evidence was collected in the case, one of the questions I had was, let's say we hit the jackpot, you know, and we find some DNA from, you know, this evidence that was collected way back in 1961. Would we have anything or anybody to compare it to? And so I started doing some research on Ted Bundy and started asking around um, within our state, starting at our crime lab, to find out if his DNA was in CODIS. And um, the answer I got was no, he's not in our state CODIS database because he was never convicted of any crimes in Washington, which makes sense. For those that aren't familiar with CODIS, it's C-O-D-I-S, and it stands for Combined DNA Index System. It's the term used to describe the FBI's criminal DNA databases, and it's also the software used to run those databases. So then I started researching where he had convictions, and I knew that he had been convicted of the two cases down in Florida and you know, ultimately executed for one of them. And so I ended up kind of going down the rabbit hole in Florida and, and reaching out to a bunch of different people and finally getting in touch with their CODIS administrator down in, um, in, for the state of Florida. He had the same answer, you know, no, Ted Bundy's DNA is not in our database. And, you know, he said, you know, that he gets calls from detectives a couple times a year asking the same question. And unfortunately, the answer is always no. Ted Bundy is you know, one of the most notorious serial killers uh, in our country's history. And uh, he really is the poster child for CODIS because he was a cross-country serial killer. And he, we know that he, he killed women in multiple states. And I'm sure that he's got other victims out there that we're unaware of. And right. so having him in CODIS would, you know, potentially help link cases together and, uh, you know, possibly identify victims that law enforcement was unaware of. So the CODIS administrator down in Florida and I kind of put our heads together and tried to figure out how we could come up with a plan to try to track down a sample of Bundy's DNA. And we knew he had been cremated. So, you know, digging him up wasn't an option. And so he decided that he would go back to his lab and take a look through, you know, some of the things that they had retained over the years. Apparently their crime lab had somewhat of a, a Bundy museum with artifacts and things from the, the trial. And then I decided I would go back here in Washington and reach out to uh, Anne Rule, um, the author who wrote The Stranger Beside Me, because I had read her book and I knew that she talked about receiving letters from Ted when he was in jail. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a possibility we could get his DNA from stamp on these the envelopes of these letters if she still has them. Right. So... I got a hold of Anne. I actually met her for lunch. It was uh, really cool um, to meet her because her book is actually uh, one of the reasons that I became a detective, uh, you know, after reading it and deciding that I was so intrigued by this story of this, you know, this killer who just looked like an ordinary guy who looked like an upstanding citizen, but it was actually a complete, you know, sexual psychopath. It was terrifying and intriguing to me at the same time. And I just, you know, had just decided that. That's what I wanted to do for a career. You know, I wanted to catch people like Ted Bundy. Oh, wow. So it was really exciting for me to be able to meet her. Um, she did agree to give me a couple of letters and envelopes that she had retained uh, from him. And, you know, thought it was a great idea to try to see if we could get a DNA from the stamp. I got a hold of my 
crime lab supervisor in the DNA section who was used to be calling him with all kinds of random requests, but this one I think was like icing on the cake. <laughs> and <laughs> he was, you know, like, okay, you want to do what now, Lindsay? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, I mean, poten- yeah, we could potentially try to get DNA from the stamps, although I don't know that it would qualify or be eligible to get into CODIS, but let's take one step at a time. And luckily, and before I even had to have the stamp tested, though, I got a call from um, David Kaufman down in Florida, who's the, the CODIS administrator down there. And he told me that he had tried to get a profile from wax molds of Ted Bundy's teeth that they had in their um, crime lab because they had taken uh, wax molds of his teeth after the Chi Omega murders to compare his, his, I guess, his bite impression to these bite marks that were found on one of the victims. Mm-hmm. So they had these molds still. I guess he was able to get a partial profile from the molds, but it wasn't really good enough to do anything with. However, he tra- was able to track down a blood vial that had been sitting in the, um, like a, a clerk's office, like a court clerk's office since 1978 when Bundy was arrested. Oh my God. And yeah. Um, <laughs> and so this, I mean, imagine like, a, a, this is like 30, you know, over 30 years old, this blood vial has been sitting in this, um, I guess a safe or something at a, this clerk's office. And so he, he got the, the vial. Unfortunately, all the blood was completely putrefied. Mm-hmm. So the, the blood in the vial was no good, but there was dried blood on the lid of the container. And so he was able to scrape off a little bit of the dried blood and got a full profile from that and was able to upload it into Florida's DNA database in, I think it was like August or September of 2011. So that was really exciting news. Of course, my next question was, okay, well, what about the national database? Is it going to go in there? And the answer was no, because Bundy's DNA was collected before he uh, was convicted. And because he was no longer in custody, he didn't qualify to go into the national database. Oh, my God. So I'm going, okay, (laughs) like, I understand rules. I I do. I understand the rules. However, let's factor in some common sense here. Ted Bundy is the poster child for CODIS. He's the reason why we, we need CODIS for guys like him. So it's, you know, it's completely unbelievable to me to think that he is not going to be in the national database for the purpose of solving cold cases. So Dave agreed uh, with me and ended up setting up some meetings with the FBI who runs the national DNA database. And after several more months of legal wrangling, they finally agreed to upload his DNA into the national DNA database into the legal index, which you know, I don't know how familiar your listeners are or how you are um, with CODIS, but CODIS has different indexes or indices. And so, you know, there's an offender index. There's a, a forensic index, which holds crime scene evidence and, you know, rape kit evidence and things like that. Um, there's a, an identified person's index. There's a missing person's index. And then there's a relative of missing person's index. And then there's a legal index. And so... They agreed to put him into legal, which, you know, for all intents and purposes, it really doesn't matter because, you know, he will still be compared against forensic samples that get entered into the national database. You know, it, it worked out and uh, we ended up sending out a notification to law enforcement around our state, just letting people know that, you know, Bundy's DNA was in CODIS now. And, you know, if you had cases where 
uh, that you thought might be, you know, related, maybe this is a good time to go back and look at your evidence and see you know, what, if anything, you you have um, that might be testable. Um, the sad thing with with um, Bundy's cases is, you know, as you know, a lot of his victims were skeletonized when they were found, and so there was really no chance of getting DNA from a suspect um, right. by the time they were located. So so far. Um, you know, as of yet, there have not been any matches uh, that I'm aware of to any cases uh, linking to him. But, you know, I'm optimistic that maybe we'll, there'll be a match at some point when people start looking into those cold cases. And, you know, I'm, I got to believe that there are cases sitting on shelves at police departments and around the country that haven't been looked at, maybe have never been tested for DNA. And, you know, certainly old cases that were investigated before DNA was, was uh, widely used by law enforcement. My understanding is that there wasn't enough DNA in Anne Marie's case, unfortunately, to test against Bundy. Is that right? Yeah. So we didn't end up finding any DNA in the evidence that we submitted to the crime lab on her case. So it was kind of a, it was a dead end in that respect. It's so hard to say. I mean, I, I'm not convinced that Ted Bundy did it. At the same time, I wouldn't rule him out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just don't have enough evidence for me personally to say, yep, I think Ted Bundy did it. Anne-Marie Burr's case has taken some strange turns throughout the years. Remember, it's been six decades. There was a man who, I guess, had the same name as Anne's father, Donald Burr, and they both lived in Tacoma at the same time. Now, this other man was the wealthier of the two, and he also had a young daughter. Some people speculated that his daughter, Deborah, could have been the initial intended victim of a kidnapping for ransom, but was saved by a case of mistaken identity, and they took Anne instead. But you'd think if that were truly what happened, a ransom call would have actually come in about Anne that was legitimate, or the other Donald Burr would have received the phone call and realized something was wrong and contacted police. I mean, you would hope so, but, you know, we'll never know. And then in the 90s, a woman came forward claiming to be Anne-Marie all grown up, and she actually met with the Burr family. She knew details about Anne-Marie's life and was absolutely certain that she was their long-lost daughter. But Beverly and Donald reportedly knew that this woman was not Anne, and eventually a DNA test would confirm that. But Beverly kept photographs of this woman in a family album anyway, which is just so sweet and so sad. The Burr family never gave up on Anne-Marie. They made sure there was always coverage of her case in the news on every anniversary of her disappearance, and they eventually held a memorial mass for their lost daughter in 1999. Sadly, Donald passed away in 2003, and Beverly passed just five years after that. It's awful to think that they never got closure about what happened to their daughter. Anne-Marie Burr is still missing to this day, and her case remains open. Any tips about what happened to her should be called into the Tacoma Police Department at 253-798-4721. If you want to hear more of Lindsay's stories, she does have a podcast of her own called Anatomy of a Cold Case, and she's working on a book, which I cannot wait to read. Washed Away is a cosmic Bigfoot production. To see show notes for each episode, meaning photos, sources, transcripts, you can visit washedawaypodcast.com. For updates, news, and behind-the-scenes stuff, you can follow Washed Away on Twitter and Instagram at Washed Away Pod. 
Send case suggestions to washedawaypodcast at gmail.com. And if you're a fan of the show, please be sure to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts, or just tell your friends to listen. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Gabby for her research and editing help on this episode. I'm Ashley Smith, the host and producer of Washed Away. Thank you for listening. Thank you.